It's me, the Kentucky Guy. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Red Pill Current News Podcast. Episode today is an interview with a special young man who was wrongly convicted of murder and spent 13 years of his life behind bars. This is part one. We will be releasing part two of this special interview on Saturday. Hope you enjoy the show, and here is the Red Pill Current News Podcast. All right, and welcome to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your host, the Kentucky Guy. Hope everybody's having a fantastic day today. Uh, we do have a special guest with us on today's episode. This is November, the month of the stars. However, before we get there, let's go over a couple of house cleaning tips. The first one is uh, we do drop new episodes here every Wednesday and Saturday. Also, if you uh, like wrestling or sports or entertainment, something like that, I do co-host with Donnie Cage against the Matt Wrestling Podcast. We drop new episodes there every Monday and Friday. Also, if you ever want to be a guest on the show or have any questions for myself, you can always email us at olkentucky99 at yahoo.com. olkentucky99 at yahoo.com. Also, folks, the new book is out. It is on Amazon. America, the land of the sleeping. Be sure to check it out. All right, so let's our special guest. And uh, he was uh, wrongfully imprisoned for murder. And he's also created and established a nonprofit, House of Renewed Hope. Please welcome to the show, big round of applause for Mr. Christopher Scott. Hey, sir, how are we doing? I'm doing great, just fine. How about you? Oh, I tell you what, fair to Midland, sir. Fair to Midland. <laughs> hey, uh, so... Uh, Christopher, since this is the first time on the show, if you don't mind, go ahead and give the audience a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, my name is Christopher Scott. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. I grew up in the, uh, the community of Oak Cliff. That's south of Dallas. Um, I'm the baby of nine siblings. It's seven boys and two girls in my family. Uh, we all are a close-knit family. Um my father passed away many years ago before I went to prison. Uh, my mom just recently passed in January, which was a hard thing for us to get over, but we are still grieving and trying to get over that as well. Um, and I say me and my family, we are real close. We celebrate pretty much all the major holidays together. And, you know, we try to stay a close knit family because that would, that would be something that my mom would want us to do because we cherish our relationships we have with each other. And, you know, you never know when your day is going to come. So you always want to, you know, be there for your loved ones, show support in anything they have going on. So, yeah, you know, my experience in Oak Cliff, I saw a lot. Um, I experienced a lot as a kid. And some of the things that I probably experienced, you know, it's probably, I probably was too young to experience it, but just living in that time and day and age of growing up in a community like Oak Cliff, which, you know, is some poverty in there as well. But I always told myself I didn't want to get caught up in the system or 
being a project of my environment and one day you know it actually happened yeah and uh um, once you have my condolences when it comes to your uh mother i'm very sorry to hear that i lost my mom in 2000 and i swear it's been 22 years but it still doesn't feel like feels like it was yesterday so Uh, yeah uh it does not get any easier which you probably already know from your dad um i uh I'm the youngest out of six in my family, so uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, pretty. Uh, and we are you very, very <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we are very uh, a very very close family as well. Um, and that was established growing up, you know, in, in my roots. So uh, yeah, I can definitely relate a lot to everything you just said. So uh, I guess we'll just we'll we'll start from the beginning. As I was telling you offline there before we started the show, you're you have such an inspiring story and. To now hear you talk in your opening and how positive after everything you've been through, it's just amazing uh, to me because I couldn't even, you know, I can't even comprehend, you know, being able to stay positive. So in 1997, pretty much your life changed, right? Yeah, you wanna, it changed for Yeah, it changed to the worst. You know, yeah, you um, I never thought bit. I would be in a position. I'm sorry. I said, uh, would you like to go ahead and tell us that story about that? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, in 1997, um, I was at home with uh, my girlfriend and my two kids. And um, a friend, I, I don't I, I don't even, I would call him a friend. I just really call him an associate because how I met Claude Simmons, which was my co-defendant. My girlfriend and their families grew up in this neighborhood. And all of these individuals went to school together. So this is how I met Klaus Simmons through my girlfriend, Brandy. But like I said, I was at home one night um, with my girlfriend and two kids and Claude Simmons. He struggles with drugs. And growing up in that environment that I saw my older brothers and their friends and older cousins use drugs, I pretty much used to just tell Claude exactly what I told those guys. You know, I told tell Claude exactly what I used to tell my brothers. Like, if you really want to quit using drugs, for one, you got to stop for yourself. You got to be a sole purpose that this is something you want to do. Nobody can do this but you. And two, I was like, you got to, you know, disassociate yourself with the individuals that you surround yourself with because if they have that much influence on you, to entice you to use drugs, those are not the kind of friends that you need. And this particular day, you know, I was, like I said, I was at home, and Claude Simmons, he had called me about five or six times for me to come and talk to him. And on Sundays, this is the day he called me. I usually, this is my routine. I take my kids to ride their bikes, the Apartment complexes we lived in, they had a duck pond. We used to go feed the ducks. You know, I used to watch me and my girlfriend's car, and I used to watch Dallas Cowboys football. This is how my everyday, every Sunday went for many, many years. Um, So I think the last time Claude called me, I was like, okay, I'm going to come and see what you want because I didn't want that on my conscience if this guy hurt himself or hurt someone else. So I was like, let me just go and see what this guy want. Now, before all of that, it's crazy because me and my kids, we had just watched a family movie. We had just ate Sunday dinner, watched a family movie. We put the kids to bed. 
me and my girlfriend, Brandy, we watching a nice movie and we just sitting back, just enjoying, you know, adulthood. And when he called, it kind of took me out of my comfort zone because I never leave that late at night. And right before I walked out the door, it was funny. My girlfriend stated, she said, you shouldn't go because of the police may mess with you. And I'm like, no, I'm going to just be in and out. It's not going to take me long. I'm going to just go see what he wants, and I'll be back home. Don't worry about it. I'll be okay. And as I'm driving to talk to Claude, it's so many different things running through my mind about what my girlfriend just said. Because being an African-American on the street this time of the night and anything is subject to happen dealing with police officers. So there's something that we really try to avoid. So as I'm pulling up into the, his neighborhood, I saw a lot of cops. And I'm talking about more cops than I'd ever seen at one time in this neighborhood. It's a middle class neighborhood, suburban neighborhood, middle class, very well kept. And when I saw the cops, I was like, something didn't happen. It's just too many cops out here tonight. So what I did was I just pulled up in Claude Simmons, uh, Claude's driveway. I blew my horn. Claude got in. He came out. He got inside of my car. And we made a couple of turns around the block. We was making sure we were staying away from wherever the cops was. And I stopped him at a friend house for maybe a minute, a minute tops. And he came back out and we, he got in my car. We went to this store called 7-Eleven. And we sit in the parking, we sit in the uh, the parking lot and I went and got us a couple of sodas. We sit in my car for about 15 to 20 minutes. And I just, I just, like I said, I just gave him the spear that I usually give my brothers. You know, if you want to stop using drugs, you got to stop for yourself. You can't be around people that's going to entice you because every time you get around them, they entice you. You end up breaking weak when you're trying to be strong. And another thing, I used to work in that neighborhood at a local grocery store called Tum Thumb. And sometimes Claude used to come in Tum Thumb also because I was over the produce department. And I used to go back there and get a fresh fruit, fresh, fresh vegetables and things of that nature. And we have basic conversations when he come to the store. But this particular night, I can tell that he was struggling. And after we left... 7-Eleven, I felt like he was okay. And, you know, we proceeded down his street. And next thing you know, a helicopter flies over my car, shines the light. And I'm thinking like, oh, wow, what is that about? But I'm not really paying no attention to it because at the same time, I know I haven't did anything. So I'm not really worrying about the helicopter. And it, what really puzzled me was, I'm going north. There's a cop coming south. And eventually that cops make a U-turn and start trailing behind us. But I didn't have too far to go to get to Claude's home. So what I did, I was like, Claude, look, I'm going to go and sit in your house and let the police, you know, die down. And then once everything get situated out here, I go home and say, yeah, fine. Come on in. Watch some TV with me. I said, OK, fine. So now I'm sitting on the couch. Um, the phone rings. It's the police. And I didn't know it at first. When I answered, he said, answer the phone. I answered, he said, hey, this, this is Dallas Police Department. 
We would like the two men that just went in the house to come outside because we need to ask y'all some questions. I told Claude exactly what they said. He said, hang the phone up. It's this house. I hang the phone up. Now, the police description that came over the police, you know, scanner of the individuals that committed this crime. Two African-American men, one tall, one short, dark complected with a low haircut. This is the general vague description that they gave. So once Mean and Claude got out the car, they immediately said, oh, those are the two guys right there. Those are the guys that we really need to talk to because they fit the description. I was the taller guy. Claude was the shorter guy. So the cops called back maybe 45 seconds to a minute later. And they say the same thing. We want the two men that just went in the house to come out. And I hang the phone up again. So now I'm getting kind of wary. I get up. I look out the window. They have the whole neighborhood and the street barricaded. You can't get in. You can't get out. There's nowhere you could go. And they started walking on side of the house, shining flashlights inside of the home. And there's women and kids inside of the house. Now they're getting scared. So I tell Claude, I say, look, let's just go outside and see what they want. You know, we hadn't did anything. We ain't got nothing to be worried about. You know what I mean? At that particular time, we actually believed in the criminal justice system. And so um, after that, we tell them that we would come out. Now, I'm sitting on the couch watching TV, Claude standing up. And soon as we open up the door, about nine officers run in and all of them have their gun drawn on me. And when I look up at them, I'm like, for one, why do y'all have so many guns drawn on me? For two, why do y'all have guns drawn on me anyway? He said, well, you on a need to know basis. Come outside. We'll tell you what you need to know. Say, yes, sir. Here I come. So they escorted us outside. They eventually laid me and like three more of the guys that was inside of the home in the front yard, face down. So they went like passerbyers. If you fit that general description that came over the uh, uh, police scanner, they got you off the corner and you're just looking to see what's going on and laid some more men on side of me. Now it's about nine of us laid on the ground. And eventually they come and pick me. Now, at the time, they don't even make Claude lay on the ground. It's just me who they actually looking at. And uh, they take me to a police van and they tell me to hold my hands out. And this detective, he opens up a, a plastic bag and pulled the liquid substance in my hand and allowed it to drip into this bag. Now, at that particular time, I'm not really paying attention to why they're doing it. So one cop turns around and say, do you know who this is? I'm like, who? He said, this detective. I'm like, no. He said, this is Columbo. I said, Columbo? He like, yeah. Have you ever seen the TV show Columbo? I was like, you mean the cop show? He was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I grew up on it. Yeah, I used to watch it all the time. He said, well, you know, Columbo always gets his man. And you will be found guilty of this crime. And I'm like, sir, what crime are you talking about? I don't even know why you even want to have a conversation with me or doing this to my hands. 
And, you know, they basically say, yeah, whatever. And they handcuff me. Well, they don't even handcuff me. Then. They say, well, we're going to put you in back of the police car. A lady is going to come identify you. If she can identify you, we have to let you go. Now, the moral of this story is it was a robbery of a drug house that went bad. Five men and one female, you know, concocted this robbery. So the female went inside of the home to see how much drugs and money they had. Once she came out, the guy, the five guys that was inside of the car, she told them two other guys got out of the car, went into the drug house. Now, the Hispanic drug dealer recognized one of the guys from committing other robberies in the neighborhood. Once he realized that this was the guy, he pulled out his gun and the robber name is, you know, Derek Anderson pulled out his gun and both of them fired at the same time. But the Hispanic drug dealer, Alfonso Aguilar, he ends up getting hit and dying at the scene of the crime. The guys out actually ran away, got the drugs and the money, ran away and hopped into a car. Now, that happened about 4.30, maybe 5 o'clock that evening. I don't get to the neighborhood until like 10.45. So it's like a five-hour period of span that passed by since this crime has happened. So when they put me in a police car and tell me that somebody was going to come identify me, I'm waiting for about 15, 20 minutes. Then my girlfriend pulls up. When she got out the car, they immediately said, hey, grab her. Grab her. I'm like, grab who? They were like, her. I'm like, her who? Her? I'm like, that's my girlfriend. She's been at home with me all day. He was like, yeah, that's what you say. I'm like, nah, that's what I know. So he gets out the car and he asked my girlfriend, could she search both of our cars? We allowed the cops to search both cars They came up empty handed and what they was actually looking for was the clothes that the perpetrators had that committed this crime because it did not fit the clothes that I had on. So now they wondering, like, where did the clothes go? And I'm like, dude, I did not change clothes, you know, inside of the home. This is not my home. This is a friend of mine. home. Yeah, whatever. They towed a house up. They couldn't find the clothes. So now. They kind of worried and puzzled, like clothes don't match. So now I'm sitting in a police car and they outside talking to my girlfriend. They handcuff her, sit on the curb and they come and tell me like, hey, the lady can't come identify you here. We got to take you downtown to the Capers building. And that's crimes against persons. I say, for what? Why do I have to go down now? You say, well, you got to get identified down there identified of what? What's the reason? You'll know when we need you to know. So, okay, they handcuffed me. I ride to the police station. Now, that night, at least 17 people went to jail. Everybody was on the ground, and other individuals that they felt or thought maybe had something to do with it, they put all of them in the paddy wagon. I'm the only one in the police car. So, we get to the police station. They immediately take the other 17 people and put them on one side of the room where they can't be seen. They immediately handcuffed me to a bench, put me in front of a big glass window, 
And the female officer walks the lady up to the glass and points at me and said, this is the man that killed your husband. Now, I can't hear her. I can only see her because I'm behind thick plexiglass. of glass. And I read her lips and my whole understanding was I know she didn't just say what I thought she said. Because when she said, this is the man that killed your husband, the Hispanic lady said, see, see, that's him. That's him. She didn't present so, it as, sorry for interrupting, but she didn't present it as a question. She just, no, it was a statement. No, it wasn't a question. It was a statement. It was like, this is the man that killed your husband. Wasn't a question. It was a statement. So once I kind of realized what she said and they escorted me to interrogation. Now, I'm still not being told what I'm down here for because now what she said, I'm not even focusing on that anymore. That's this not even the issue. I'm trying to figure out why am I here? Why am I? Why is Christopher Scott here? So they take me to the interrogation room. They say, well, uh, who do you get your drugs from? I say, what? I say, who do you get your drugs from? I'm like, I'm not a drug seller. They say, yeah, you're a drug seller. I say, no, I'm not a drug seller. I work every day. He said, well, people in this neighborhood told us that you were a drug dealer, that you were the neighborhood kingpin. I say the neighborhood kingpin. I was like, I do not know. I don't know a kingpin anyway. But two, I don't know a kingpin that has a day to day job. Don't know kingpin that any of y'all may know work at a local grocery store as Tom Thumb. Sorry, Kingpin don't work at local grocery store. It, it just don't happen. So they questioned me about these drugs for the next two and a half hours. We need to know this. We want to know how much it costs. Where you get it at? Where they drop it off at? I'm like, look, y'all barking up the wrong tree. So I immediately say, well, can I use the restroom? They say, yeah, you can use the restroom because you can't go anywhere. Now I watched enough cop shows to know. Once you go outside interrogation, if you look up, that's what you're being questioned about. So when I look up, it said homicide. I was like, oh, man, these folks think I've shot or killed somebody. Now I'm panicking. But when I get to the bathroom, I'm OK because I'm like, I hadn't fired a gun. So I'm not worried about it. So I put some cold water on my face, uh, stand there about two or three minutes, come back and go to the interrogation room. And soon as I walk in, I say, look, I don't know what y'all mean or what are y'all talking about, but we need to figure out. I want to know why I am here. For what reason? They say, well, we tired of BSing with you. Stand up, put your hands behind your back. You're going to jail for capital murder. I say, capital murder? I say, you was just asking me about drugs. Now, you done turned it into capital murder. They say, yeah, you're going to jail for capital murder for killing Alfonso Aguilar. I say, for one, I don't even know who Alfonso Aguilar is. But two, I didn't have anything. Of, I didn't have anything to do with this. I had no knowledge of it. So why am I going to jail for it? Because that lady said you the one that did it. I say, no. That lady didn't make that statement. The officer made the statement. I say the officer walked her up to the window and said, this is the man that killed your husband. Well, we don't want to hear that. You're going to jail for capital murder. 
So as I'm ex- getting escorted out the um the interrogation room, I'm like, this is unbelievable. I did not know people went to jail for crime they didn't commit. Now I'm lost, I'm confused, I'm scared because I've never been in this kind of trouble before. And as we're walking down the hallway, an officer stops. And he said, I need to speak to Mr. Scott alone. So the officer, you know, walked away and this officer told me, say, Mr. Scott, to my knowledge, I do not believe you committed this crime. And I say, I know I didn't, but they said that I'm going to jail for capital murder. He said, look, this is the reason. He said, for one, we put you in a in a lineup. This lady couldn't even pick you out prior to just seeing you. He said, 10 minutes after she saw you, we put you in a lineup. She could not pick you out. And she told us she was scared to pick you out. And I was like, why? Scared of who? Scared of Mr. Scott? She was like, yeah. And he was like, you can't be scared of him because he's locked up behind a door with other officers. And you're locked up behind a door with officers as well. Why would you be scared of Mr. Scott? Well, I'm scared of him. I'm scared of him. And then he said, for two, Mr. Scott, he said, look. You're well-dressed, you're well-groomed, you're well-spoken, you're driving a nice car. We found an uncast paycheck stub in your back pocket. This is not the crime that fits you. This is the crime that fits the Dauphine. This is exactly what the cop told me. He said, better yet, if you go to trial, subpoena me. I testify that it's not one single shred of evidence linking you to this crime. He said, it's not. Only thing we have is her word against yours. We don't have no murder weapon. We don't have no fingerprints. We don't have no positive ID. We really don't have nothing but her word alone. He say, and I can state that in court if you subpoena me. I say, yeah, we. Are, I say, whatever, because my mind is not even functioning straight. So I go to, they take me to booking. And as soon as I get to booking, I see my girlfriend. She said, Chris, they think you killed somebody. I said, yeah, I know. But I said, I'm like, man, you know, I didn't kill nobody. Like she said, I know. But what they talking about? I said, I don't know. Hopefully we'll find out soon. So they took all my clothes, put me in this plastic jumper and tell me my attorney is here to see me. Now, when this capital murder, life or death, your your attorney comes that night because of the crime. And when he sit down in front of me, I said, uh, my name is Christopher Scott. I would like to take a polygraph test. And he stated, he said, well, tell me what you did today. I told him exactly from getting up from brushing my teeth to washing my face to feeding the ducks and everything. And I say, but that said, I want to take a polygraph. My attorney said no. And I was like, why? And he was like, because you may fail a test. I'm like, I'm not going to fail no polygraph test if I'm telling you I'm innocent. He said, I'm going to have to refuse that test, Mr. Scott. I'm like, why? If I'm telling you, I said, I thought you were supposed to be working for me. He said, I am. I said, I can't tell because I'm telling you I want a polygraph test and I'm going to pass it. He said, well, this is my method of doing this. I'm not going to ask for it. I'm not going to ask the courts for it. And, you know, you just got to deal with it. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to set you up like that. I'm like, you're not setting me up. I'm going to pass this polygraph test. Right then and there, I knew that my attorney actually felt like I either committed the crime, knew about the crime, or had something to do with the crime. 
And I didn't feel comfortable with this guy. And I was like, man, I'm going to prison if this guy is going to represent me. So eventually I get booked. I go to, you know, arraignment. They give me a million dollar bond. Now they know I can't afford no million dollar bond. So I'm going to have to sit in jail and fight this case. Now, the day everybody found out that we went to jail, the guy that actually committed this crime went home crying to his girlfriend, told her, hey, me and Alonzo Hardy just robbed and killed this Hispanic drug dealer. And Chris and Cloud is, you know, finna go to jail, you know, for this case. What I need you to do is go downtown and tell these people your boyfriend confessed. But when you go tell them that, I'm going to be headed out of town. I'm not going to be in town. I'm going to be gone. So, at this particular time, go down there and tell him that. So she went down there and told her name was Cookie. Cookie went and told the cops, look, y'all had the wrong two men. My boyfriend just confessed that he the one committed this crime. They told Cookie never to come to Dallas County Jail again and say this, or if she do, she going to jail. They got the people who they want, and that's it. Cookie left. She never came back again. So now I'm sitting in jail, maybe two, two and a half weeks. And now the ballistic report came back. I think it's like the third week I'm in jail. The ballistic report came back. I wasn't a shooter. So now I'm thinking like, oh, I'm not the shooter. Now I can go home. My attorney say, no, you can't go home. I'm like, why? If I'm not the shooter, why I can't go home? He say, well, in the act of. The robbery, y'all sex, aggravated, sexual assaulted Alfonso Aguilar's wife, Salida Escobedo. I'm like, what? He was like, yeah, y'all, you know, sexual assaulted his wife. I'm like, look, dude, I didn't sexual assault nobody. You see that the forensics came back. I didn't fire a gun. Y'all thought that I was the shooter and I'm not the shooter. That's what I was booked as the shooter, and I'm not the shooter. He said, no, but you're going to get reindicted on capital murder and aggravated sexual assault. I'm like, man, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I already knew that this was going to happen because of him being my attorney. So he said, well, not only that, what they're going to do is they're going to pick up Cloud Simmons because they say now Cloud Simmons is the one that actually killed Afonso Aguilar and you was just there, you know, as a, you know, as his co-defendant. I was like, man, you know, I didn't kill nobody. And when Claude was with me, he didn't kill nobody. I can verify to that, that that didn't happen. He said, well, this is what's going on. And now we just got to go to trial and fight this capital murder case. And I told him, I was like, don't you know this life of death? Don't you know that? He was like, yeah, I know that. I say, so you telling me that I can be, you know, go to death row for a crime I didn't commit? He was like, yeah, if you get found guilty, it's up to their choice of how they want to try this case. Aggravated life sentence or death row and wait on a lethal injection. Now my mind is just all over the place. I can't believe I was at home with my girlfriend and two kids that come out of my house to try to help somebody. And this is the situation I get thrust that I get thrown up into. 
I couldn't believe it. My mind was just all over the place. So I'm sitting in jail for about a month and a half, two months. It's time to pick the jury panel. We go through four different jury panels before we can find one that's going to actually find me guilty. One lady got up and told the judge that me and her had a relationship, that she couldn't be on the jury committee. And I was like, I never seen this lady a day in my life. And she lied like that just to get off the jury panel. Never seen her before in my life. But she said me and her dated just to get off the jury panel. I was like, this is not going good for me. There's one African-American person that's not going to be on the jury panel. So, like I say, we pick. We go through four different jury panels. And all of them say they cannot find me guilty of capital murder because you have no physical evidence. All of them said it. Her word alone is not enough to convict this man of capital murder. Just her word alone. If it was her and somebody else, maybe. But just her word and his against his word, no, we can't do it. Five minutes later, an African-American guy stood up and told the judge, I can find Mr. Scott guilty on her word alone. Ten minutes later, I had an all-white jury panel. And I was like, and I looked at this black guy. I was like, dude, seriously, out of all people in the court building, you will be the one say you can find me guilty just on her word alone. Another African-American person. And like I said, after that, ten minutes later, all-white jury panel. My judge was white. The prosecutor was white. And the second in the in, in the Second in the prosecutor chair was white and my attorney was white. So I, I, you know, I made a joke about it, but it wasn't funny. I said, the only thing of color in this courtroom is me and a furniture. Everything else is white. It's no way I'm going to have a fair trial in this courtroom. Third night, 15, 20 minutes later, my judge asked me why she shouldn't seat the death penalty. Mr. Scott, why shouldn't I seek the death penalty on you? Tell me why. And the only thing I could come up with was, how could you kill an innocent man? How? And she looked at me, you know, looking up under those glasses she wore. She was like, Mr. Scott, you just saved your own life today. We're not going to kill you, but we're going to give you a capital life sentence. This in front of the jury, the judge said, we're going to give you a capital life sentence before my trial even started. So now you're pausing in the jury mind to already have in their mind that you know I'm guilty and I'm going to be found guilty. So the jurors in their mind, oh, this guy guilty now because the judge said it. So now I go to trial. I testify on my own behalf. I feel like it couldn't hurt me because I'm already being railroaded. Every shred of evidence we had to prove our innocence, the judge threw it out. Our lieutenant of our police force came to my trial with the pictures of the men that actually committed the crime. He said, these are the men that I heard committed these crime. Alonzo Hardy and Derek Anderson. These are the two men that committed this crime. Some of the cops are saying it, and my informants in the neighborhood are saying these are the men that committed this crime. The judge told him to get out the courtroom, 
that's hearsay. They have the people on trial who committed this crime. So now this is the police lieutenant of the police force telling her these people committed this crime. The judge and prosecutor didn't want to hear. It's hearsay. It's hearsay. They don't want to hear it. Excuse, you know, the cops get excused. Now trial starts. My capital murder trial lasted two and a half, maybe three hours. My deliberation lasted about 45 minutes. Um, a few more other cops got on the stand and said the same thing. It's not one shred of evidence linking him to this crime. It's not one. Only thing we have is that lady word against his. We have no fingerprints. We have no murder weapon. She couldn't picture him. You know, she couldn't ID him, you know, in a lineup. So we don't have anything but her word against his. And it's nothing linking him to this crime physically. The district, the, the prosecutor said, we're not talking about physically. We're talking about, you know, description. She picked him out. And, you know, the, what what else could the officer do? With, like, I'm just coming up here to give my side of the story and what I think happened. And, you know, the cops is excused. Like I say, 45 seconds, 45 minutes later, I was um, guilty of capital murder. Even before my trial started, my sister was in the hallway. And my sister said that my attorney and a prosecutor said, after trial over, let's go have lunch. And, you know, we could talk about whatever. My sister said she was trying to overhear him. But the only thing she said, like, hey, when the trial is over, let's go grab lunch and dinner and we can talk about a few things. And she told my attorney that my attorney told, you know, she told my attorney that she heard him say that. Like, I heard you say that. And he was like, hey, that's what the prosecutors and attorneys do all the time. This this is our natural thing or whatever. And my sister was like, before my brother go to trial, this is what you have to talk to this prosecutor about. So now um Faced with an aggravated life sentence, uh, have to do 40 years, you know, day per day before I'm eligible for parole. And like, it, it was like, it's crazy. I always picture it like a saloon door. How Westerners walk in the saloon door and the door swings open. It was just like that with me and Claude. As I'm walking out, Claude is walking in to go to trial. Claude trial lasted an hour and a half, his deliberation lasted five minutes. Five minutes, his deliberation. Five minutes? Five-minute deliberation. Yeah, it didn't take long at all. Five minutes. I think they recorded it as being the fastest deliberation in Dallas County history. I think that's what that was. Um, now, we both going to prison for a crime we didn't commit. And like I said, I know Cloud, but I don't know Cloud. I only met Claude through my girlfriend in a brief conversations that I had with him about using drugs. That's pretty much all we had in common with each other. Now I'm in going to prison for a capital murder case with a guy that I don't even know his middle name. I don't even know his middle name. So I'm like, wow, this is this is so bizarre. And when the day I'm leaving for prison, it was cold and it was raining. And it's crazy how they, you know that you're about to leave. They have like a hundred handcuffs changed together. And they like slides them down on the floor. And whatever, you know, 
like sell you in, you get the herd. And this tells you that you're finna get ready and get handcuffed and you finna get ready and get on a TDC bus and go to prison. And when I heard that sound of them handcuffs sliding across the floor, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. And I can't believe this is the way I find out I'm finna get ready and get on the prison bus. And that ride was like a two hour ride, but it felt like it was five hours. When I got on that bus and that rain was coming down, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe I'm in this position. Why did God do this to me? Why am I being forsaken like this? And I always told myself, you go through something for a reason. And I got to my prison. And when we pulled up, oh, my God, it's this humongous brick building with a lot of glass windows. You have cops, you have TDC officers on gun towers with like AR-15s pointed at you. And you're like, oh my God, are you, is this what I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life? And I feel tears welling up in my eyes. I didn't want the other inmates to see me cry. It's raining, so I just lifted my face up to the sky. And let the raindrops hit my face so people wouldn't think that I was actually crying because I knew once I got behind these gates, I may not never come out on the other side again alive. And once I got into the building, you smelled the aroma of fresh pine saw, bleach, all kinds of disinfectants is in the air because they have to keep prisons clean. And smelling it, it's just like, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to have to go through for the next 40 years or maybe the rest of my life. And the final bell was when you hear that prison door slam shit, that doom, that lets you know it's official. You are now behind bars and there's no way to get out of it. But trying to get your freedom back again. And how can you fight for your freedom? What could I do? Because that was that was like a final bell of a 12-round 12, 12 fight of a heavyweight champion. You hear that last bell, you hopefully you come out victorious. But on the but in but in the same instance I wasn't victorious. I lost that fight for 13 years. And once I got here I was like 135, maybe 140 pounds. And I'm looking at all these guys that I weigh me by 60, 70, 100 pounds. And I'm like, I, I, I got to do something to put weight on my body because if I don't and I have to, you know, defend myself, it may be hard because I don't know the rules and the regulations of prison yet. So for the first three and a half years, I worked inside of the field. Whatever we ate, we planted and we picked. Cantaloupe, watermelon, beans, peas, cabbage, squash, okra, potatoes, tomatoes. But, you know, whatever we picked, we ate and we planted. And it's crazy. Like my first fight in prison, it it, it took me aback because it's funny. We always mention this. 
in the neighborhood I grew up in. If you haven't seen your friend in years, it's either two places yet. He's either dead or he's in prison. And as I'm walking around the prison yard, I hear my name called like three or four different times. And I'm like, who the hell on this unit know me? And next thing you know, these was guys that I went to school with. Like, what are you doing in here? What are you? They was so surprised to see me in prison. They're like, what are you doing here? And I told them, like, I'm in here for a crime I didn't commit. They were like, what crime is that? I'm like, capital murder. they like, ooh, you you, you got to make. I say, yeah, capital murder. Capital murder. They were like, wow. I'm like, yeah, this is how it's going down. So eventually I go back to my cell after meeting everybody. I end up having a fight because commissary is necessary. If you ever hear that dinner with anybody in prison, commissary is necessary. It's where you go get your food. It's where you go get your toiletries and things of that nature. It's it's a must that you go to commissary so you can survive in prison. And that was my first fight because a guy tried to skip me in commissary line. If you allow a guy to skip you in commissary line, you allow the guy to come and take everything that you have because now they're looking at you as being scary or you can't protect yourself. So when he did that, it was a must that me and that guy had to fight. We fought and and I won. And a lot of people was, you know, kind of surprised that this skinny guy could fight this good. But now I was like, you know, this guy, I weighed me. So if, Prison didn't have any rules. He made a one because when you fight in prison, you can't wrestle. It's like hand-to-hand comeback until you can't take no more. Or you if you can't get off the floor once somebody knock you down, that's when the fight is over. Ain't no stomping you on the ground. Ain't no hitting you on the ground. It's all about being squared up, one-on-one, mano to mano, best man win. And that's what happened. But this is not how I want to live in prison. I felt like this is something I had to do to prove my manhood to the people that's in prison. Like he's no pushover. You can't deal with him any kind of way. So now I'm in prison. It's like, come up with a foundation. What can you do to make your day easier in prison? And that's what I did. I came up with a foundation. Once I worked in the fields for three and a half years, the, the, my field officer that I worked for, he, me and him had things, a few things in common. Both of us liked the Dallas Cowboys. So once I got out there and I was able to talk to him about Dallas Cowboys, the relationship grew. And once that relationship grew, he was looking at me in another light like, I can't believe you in here either, Scott, Christopher Scott, because you don't talk like this is a place that you're supposed to be. I'm sorry you are in here. He said, I really never had these kind of conversations with nobody, but I want to have this conversation with you. I think you're a good guy. Whatever they said you did, I don't even think you committed it because you told me you didn't commit this crime. He just told me, keep fighting your case, never give up. And he said, you know, this will be your last day in the field. I'm going to get you a job. And a job he got me is what I really wanted. I wanted a job in the kitchen. So I end up getting a job in the kitchen where I can eat and put on weight. I was like, cool. I'm in the kitchen. I'm eating. I can put on weight. So that's one part of my day gone. The next part, I said, well, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to put some muscles with the weight that I gained. 
So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I went to work. I worked out. Then I got into reading books. I probably read about three books per week. And then the final straw of the day, I got back into watching soap operas. And people laugh about it when I tell them that, but soap operas are mandatory in prison. It's three things that's mandatory in prison. The news, sports, and soap operas. Those are the three things you're going to hear on TV all through the prison, prison, you know, the prison inside of the prison. Those three things on a day-to-day, all-day basis. So once I got that foundation down, I said, well, this is going to keep me out of trouble. Now I can really focus on working on my case. And I started working on my case, working on my case. But my case was so hard because my case had no DNA in it. So every innocent project I wrote said they could not take my case because they haven't ever seen a person get exonerated with no DNA in this case. So I'm kind of at a loss. They gave me a million and one chance. Every organization I wrote told me it's a million and one chance that you can get out of prison without no DNA. It's two things you need, new discovered evidence or somebody coming back confessing to the crime with details that only person know these details is the person that actually committed this crime. So now that's what I'm trying to dig up. Now I know there's nobody in the world that's going to come back and confess to capital murder because there's no statute of limitation law for murder. Murder, it can go 80 years old and you can get convicted of an 80-year-old murder. So now I'm thinking like, I'm screwed. What can I do? Who can help me? Or whatever the case may be. So I'm in prison for these years. I'm working. I'm in there. I went in 97. I got a letter from my brother in 2002. It's kind of like when everything started changing. Well, it didn't change, but I got noticed that the DA office had my case inside of the office. My brother worked. My brother was incarcerated with one of the guys that actually committed this crime, Lonzo Hardy. My brother worked in a barbershop in prison. One day, Lonzo Hardy walks into the barbershop out of the blue, sits in my brother's barber chair. Now, this guy, he don't know this guy's my brother. And tells my brother, man, me and my friend D-Mate robbed and killed this Hispanic drug dealer. And it's two guys in prison for that crime we committed. And my brother got to thinking like, man, my little brother got a case just like that. And he knew Alonzo, um, he knew Alonzo was from North Dallas, and that's where I lived at in North Dallas. And he asked Alonzo, he was like, tell me about the person that's locked up for you. He knew everything about me. His name is Christopher Scott. He got two kids. His girlfriend's name is Brandy. He drives a forest green and gold Lexus. He's a produce supervisor at Tom Thumb Grocery Store. My brother was like, dude, that's my little brother. He was like, no, he was like, dude, that's my little brother. And I'm going to prove it to you. Come to the rec yard. I'm going to show him a picture. I'm going to show you a picture of him. And I guarantee you that's him. My brother showed him the picture. Lo and behold, that's Christopher Scott, who's in prison for the crime I committed. And my brother told him, like, look, you got two choices. Either write the affidavit. Say you committed this crime or every day in prison is going to be a living hell for you. So you make the choice. 
He said, I've been wanting to do it. I just hadn't had enough nerve, but now I got enough nerve to write the affidavit. My brother said, good. We wrote the affidavit to the DA office, which at that particular time, his name was Henry Wade. He was real racist. He was one of the racist DA we didn't ever had in Dallas County history. His conviction rate was 98.9 conviction rate when you went in front of him. Now this, you're gonna get this, you're gonna get go ahead. Sorry, this was in I just want to clarify for the audience. This was in two thousand and two, right? When your brother had to Yes, this okay. Yes, it was in two thousand and two when we wrote the district attorney. And when when were and you released? I was released in 2009, so I had to do an additional seven years. Crazy. Okay, go ahead, sir. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. So once my brother had wrote me, because I didn't even know it, he, he found this guy. I, I didn't even know they was on the same unit together. My brother wrote me like, hey, man, I got some great news. Alonzo Hardy walked into the barbershop talking loud about this case him and his homeboy committed. And it ended up being you. I got an affidavit from him. It's signed. It's gone to the DA office. This is what you need to do. So I wrote the DA office. I let them know who I was. And maybe a month later, I got a letter from the DA office. And the DA was like, don't write this office anymore. This case is closed. We are never exonerate a man or any woman that doesn't have any DNA inside of his case. So this case is closed. You don't have the right back because there's nothing we can do for you. Kind of like point blank, just like that. What I mean, it, it, I mean, he 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 could have just cussed me out on it and just said, "Screw you know, don't worry about it. We there's nothing we can do for you." The way he you know addresses this letter. So vague and, and like it just didn't have no compassion in it. And I always told myself, like, it would never be changes until we get people that has compassion for one about someone else's life. Folks, you've been listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast with your host, the Kentucky Guy. Hey, as always, God bless and God bless America.